morning. How are y'all? Sounds good. (laughs) Well, this morning we are in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're making our way through this great book. We're almost, we're getting there. We'll be in chapter 3 next week. And shortly we'll be in chapter 3, verse 21, which is a fantastic passage and where Paul really begins to expand upon the gospel. But right now we're just working our way through some difficult stuff in this book. But we do that because we go through each section, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and see what the word of the Lord has to say to us this morning. Romans 2, 25 through 29, if you're using one of those blue church Bibles... And I would invite you to have a Bible and look at it as we're reading along. But if you need a Bible, those blue church Bibles underneath the seats around you, page 940 will bring you to this morning's text. The title of this sermon is The Jewish Rite of Circumcision. The Jewish Rite of Circumcision. I bet you all got up this morning and thought to yourself, I cannot wait to go to church because I'm so hoping he talks about circumcision. and the only reason I'm talking about it is because it's in the text it's in the text, Paul addresses it so we're addressing it for many people today the practice of circumcision and I'm just going to assume that you know what that means for many people it's detached from having any religious significance at all Uh, instead the decision to circumcise or not to circumcise, is typically based on family customs. Whatever the family does, that's what we do. Or whether the father of the child is circumcised or not. So, religious beliefs don't come into it very often anymore. Right? Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? If not, ask the person next to you. Uh, But for the Jew... For the Jew in the first century, being circumcised had everything to do with their religious beliefs. Everything to do with them. And it was, it was not optional. Okay? They, it, was, it was required, it was expected, it was important to them. We learn from the Old Testament, Genesis 17. You can, we won't go to these passages this morning. I'm just going to give you some that maybe you could go to later so you can investigate this for yourself. Because the Bible talks a lot about circumcision. So maybe you're wondering why. And so we'll explore that a little bit this morning, okay? In Genesis 17, you learn that there that circumcision was the procedure that God required Abraham and all of his male descendants through the line of Isaac, his son, uh, to be to to be done to them, so he gave it to Abraham and the descendants of his son Isaac. The command for the Jewish people to circumcise their children on the eighth day was also included in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. So you can see that in Leviticus 12, verse three. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. This is where you find references. Deuteronomy to to the circumcision, to uh, the instruction to be circumcised. According to Genesis 17.11, it was to be a sign of the covenant or the special promises that God made to Abraham and to his descendants after him. It was a sign. Circumcision served as an outward mark, in a sense, that distinguished the Jews, certainly the male Jews, obviously, uh, or, or the descendants of Abraham, from the rest of their neighbors, their heathen neighbors, the, uh, the Gentile people who did not acknowledge or follow the God of Abraham. So it was a sign. It distinguished them as the people who followed after God or the people of God who had a covenant with God. As time passed, the the Jews or the people of Israel even referred to themselves as the circumcised. So as a group, 
They identified in that way. We are the circumcised. And they identified the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Non, yeah, us. We would fall under that category. Non-Jewish people. They identified the non-Jewish people as the uncircumcised. You can see those references in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And so it wasn't just Jews and Gentiles. Now it's the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Now on the surface, someone might think that God requiring the Jews to circumcise their male children sounds a little strange. Does anybody think that? Just, just on the surface. Does it seem a little odd to you? You might ask, why did God choose to make removing the foreskin of the male reproductive organ a sign of his covenant to Abraham. Why? Well, it's important to understand that God often instituted procedures or gave instructions that seemed a little bit odd at first, but they were always intended to illustrate or to point to something of great significance, something that was very important. Okay, so there's a lot of things when you're reading through the Scriptures and you go, I do not understand this at all. This does not make sense to me. Why would God do this particular thing? Why would he instruct the people to do this or that? Typically, it had a greater meaning, a greater impact. It was symbolic, maybe, of something. For example, let me give you a perfect example. Why did God institute the sacrificial system for sins? And you can read about that sacrificial system in Leviticus. Why did he institute that system that led to the slaughter of an innumerable amount of innocent animals? You ever wondered about that? I mean, is it because he hates bulls and goats and glories and takes pleasure in watching them die? Is that what it is? I mean, because the Jewish people killed a lot of them. A lot of them. Or is it because there actually is power in the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins? Is that what it is? Is that why God gave the instruction? Look, slaughter these animals because they will, they will actually provide you forgiveness of sins. Well, no, neither one of those things are true. But if you read Hebrews, specifically Hebrews 10.1, the writer there says that the law, where all of these instructions are contained, all of these strange instructions maybe, that appear strange at first, it says the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the realities themselves. What does that mean? That means that the law was pointing to something greater than itself. This was not the end. This was symbolic or to teach or to instruct the people about something else more important, more significant. So, when we talk about the law of the sacrifice or the sacrificial system, in part, the sacrificial system was instituted by God and was designed to reveal the seriousness of the consequences of sin. I mean, it was serious. They had to slaughter all of these animals. This innocent life was required for sin. And it also demonstrated the true need for a sacrifice that would provide complete and permanent forgiveness of sins, which the blood of bulls and goats could never do. So we learn from reading the Scriptures that God gave the sacrificial system really, primarily, to prepare the people for the Messiah. To prepare them for Jesus Christ, who would be the innocent and perfect Lamb of God, the one who would offer Himself up as a perfect sacrifice that would once and for all take away the sins of every single person who would believe. We learn that in Hebrews 10. You can read it yourself. Go there and look. So likewise, with circumcision now, it was intended by God to illustrate something very important as well. What is that, you ask? Well, I'm not going to take time this morning to completely develop this, but I found these comments from 
One Bible scholar that you, many of you are familiar with, his name is John MacArthur. He's the same one who wrote the notes for the study Bible that we, that we encourage people to pick up if they don't have one. Here's what he said concerning the, the importance or the symbolism behind the circumcision or the rite of circumcision that God gave to the Jewish people. He begins by saying there was a health benefit. There was a health benefit. And you've got to understand, some people just think, oh, God gave the nation of Israel circumcision because of the health benefit that it brought them. That's not really the main reason, if a reason at all. Uh, certainly, there was a health benefit. And he says, since disease could be kept in the folds of the foreskin, so that removing it prevented that. He goes on to say, historically, Jewish women have had the lowest rate of cervical cancer. Okay, so that's interesting, but is that the reason God gave it to them? He wanted to make sure that the Jewish women would be, have a low rate of, of cervical cancer? No, but it is interesting to note uh, the relationship of disease and removing of this foreskin, and it prevents a disease. It says, but the symbolism had to do with the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. It was the, and just listen, it was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity. That's moral corruption. It is the male organ because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Now, maybe you're just shaking your head and going, I have no idea what he's talking about right now. And I don't really want to get into all that right now. Romans 5.12, we know that through Adam, sin entered the world. I'll just say, well, we'll get there and we'll look at that more in detail and how that's understood. But just understand, Adam sinned. Through Adam, he continued to pass on sin. Okay? Through his seed. Thus... Circumcision symbolized the need for a profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of depravity, of our moral corruption. That's the symbolism behind it. He says it in another place, he says it just like this, maybe this will be a little bit easier. Circumcision was a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. It was symbolizing something. I mean, really, removing the foreskin from the male human organ, do you think, you think that removed the sin of disease, the disease of sin? No, it was symbolic of something else. This deep cleansing from sin's deadly disease is spoken about by God as the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart. You'll see that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It is also referred to by Paul in our text today in verse 29 where he says, you're going to see it, circumcision is a matter of the heart. Of the heart. Which we're going to look at closer here in a moment. Unfortunately, many of the Jews in Paul's day had distorted or had a distorted understanding of their right, of their religious right, Circumcision. They believed, now listen, they believed being circumcised was a guarantee that they would be exempt from God's wrath and be kept out of hell. Here are some quotes from rabbis. I know that seems strange, but that's what they believe. Here are some quotes from some rabbis, ancient rabbis of that time. No circumcised man will see hell. Now, rabbi, when I say rabbi, understand that's their Jewish teachers. Okay, like a, a pastor for a Christian church. These are their pastors. These are the instructors of the law. These are the men that are supposed to be explaining what the law means. And these are the kind of things that some of them were saying. Circumcision saves from hell. God swore to Abraham. By the way, this is not true. God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. Whenever I read these, I always wonder about the poor women. You're right? I mean, what's in it for them? Nothing. They're not circumcised. So I'm like thinking, wow, so the men are walking around with a guarantee. I guess the women just have to hope for the best. 
Or maybe if they're married to a circumcised man, if they were Jewish, they would have been. They get in, like the Mormons believe. If you're a wife of a Mormon, you get in. Or so. I don't know. I don't know exactly, but it's just strange to me. Abraham, listen to this, sits before the gate of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite. He doesn't let any circumcised, circumcised Israelite enter there. Can you imagine? Are you circumcised? <laughs> you shall not enter into the gates of hell. This is crazy, but this is... Uh, this is this is where they had come to at, at a point in the, in, the, in the nation, the religious nation, okay? Now, you just remember how funny this seems, and then I want to I apply this to us today. You remember the laughter, because it is crazy, funny. It's all we can do. We can go, are you kidding? But there are some similarities between what we do today with some of our religious ceremonies. And while the rabbis may have taught that the Jews, and, or taught these things, and the Jews and Paul's day may have believed them. Beloved, none of them are true. So the Apostle Paul now takes up that issue beginning in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, okay? That's the historical context. That's what's going on. That's what Paul's addressing. This false perception of the benefits of circumcision. So let's read the text together, beginning in verse 25. Paul says, For circumcision... Indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay? This passage is a little bit difficult and there are some different opinions about how exactly what Paul is getting at and so I'll go one direction and, and I believe it to be the right direction but I always reserve the right to uh, change my opinion later on if I discover new information but I, I'm going to kind of take you through it and I just try to keep your mind on what the main emphasis here is and without getting bogged down to some of the details. This morning we're going to consider two ways in which Paul undermined the Jews' confidence in the right of circumcision and we're going to do that so that we as christians might never place our salvation hope in our religious ceremonies okay that's the connection we're going to make that's what we're going to draw from the text so we just don't stand back and go those dumb jews they were so dumb yeah well we get it wrong too many times in the 21st century in the christian community we get some things wrong too we start to make some of the same mistakes the jews did so don't, don't be so quick to attack them. First, Paul challenged the perceived value of ceremonial circumcision. We'll look at that. Second, Paul explained the necessity of a different kind of circumcision. So the first point, look back at the text one more time. Chapter 2, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, what I believe Paul is mainly, primarily getting at here, beginning with this verse and looking at the rest here through 29, he's getting at a Jewish objection, potential Jewish objection. He's anticipating an objection the Jews would bring against what he has already said to them, his previous teaching that we've been looking at in chapter 2 of Romans. And you may be asking, well, what has he already said to them? What is this previous teaching that the Jews may now be upset about and they're objecting to what he's saying and so they bring up this concept of circumcision? Well, the teaching is that the Jews would be treated exactly the same by God as the Gentiles when it comes to God's judgment and therefore they were equally in danger of the wrath of God because they too had failed to keep the law of God. You've got to understand that that concept, that idea, that truth was very offensive to the Jew. They thought they were superior on many levels to the Gentiles. They did not think they would be treated the same in regard to God's judgment 
as those pagan, uncircumcised Gentiles. Paul is now attacking the advantage the Jews still believe they had over everyone else because of their right of circumcision. That religious ceremony that externally, externally identified them as the people of the Abrahamic covenant or the people of God and that right that they had come to believe actually made them exempt from the God's future wrath. Paul is attacking that. So I believe Paul's basic point here to the Jew is that there is absolutely no way for circumcision to shield them from the wrath of God because, as he has already stated, he's already made it clear the Jew was also guilty of breaking the law of God. And that fact made them just as liable to the wrath of God as the Gentile, since God is not one to show partiality. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. And in fact, Paul says, as a result of their law-breaking, their circumcision had actually, in a sense, become uncircumcision uncircumcision. What does that mean? Did they grow back their foreskin? No. That would be weird. It means that their law-breaking ultimately made them no different than the uncircumcised Gentiles in the sense that just like the Gentiles, they really had no special protection from God's divine wrath. They should have thought of themselves just like they were thinking about the Gentiles. They should have thought of themselves in the very same way. For they too were lawbreakers. And God shows no partiality. Circumcision did not make them right with God, nor did it make them exempt from His righteous judgment. One writer says this, Paul's purpose in this section is not to indicate how circumcision is of value with respect to the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. That's not his goal here. He's not not trying to emphasize that right now, but rather to remove circumcision from the list of those things that the Jew might think would afford him an automatic pardon from the wrath of God. You know what pardon means? When they issue a pardon, it says you're free to go. We are not going to... Hold these crimes against you. It's as if you're innocent. And Paul, for the Jew, circumcision gave them an automatic pardon with God. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Are you guys nuts? You are lawbreakers. Circumcision is of no value to you. What are you talking about? I mean, theoretically, it would have some value if you kept the law, but you don't keep the law perfectly. You break the law. You are just as subject to the wrath of God as those uncircumcised Gentiles. Understanding that that is what Paul's purpose is supported by looking at the verse that immediately follows this section. Why don't you let your eyes glance back there. When he's done with verses 25 through 29, his next question statement is, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value or benefit of circumcision? Huh? That's what he, so this implies that in the 25 through 29 of verse 2, the section that follows that statement that he had just undermined, greatly undermined the perceived value of external circumcision in the mind of the Jew. Because then they would be asking that question. He's asking, he's anticipating that question. Well, then what's the point of being a Jew? And why did God give us circumcision then? There seems like there's no value in it. Okay, now he'll answer that. He'll deal with that. You've got to wait till we get there. But just understand, that would have been their reaction to 25 through 29 because Paul is just destroying their perceived value of circumcision. Just destroying it. In verse 26, Paul continues his challenge or attack on the value of circumcision, you know, this idea that it would shield the Jew from the wrath of God, with what I believe here is a hypothetical scenario. A hypothetical scenario. One that is only possible in theory. Okay? So... 
just like when we read in 2.13 where it says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And I told you that that was a hypothetical statement. It is true in one sense, but it is not true in reality because nobody has perfectly kept the law. So no one can be justified by God by keeping the law. It's hypothetical. It's true, but it's not true in reality. It's true in theory. I believe the same thing is going on here. I think he's doing it again in Romans 2.26. He presents a hypothetical. I don't believe this is a, a real possibility. He says in 2.26, So if a man... Okay, he's just... Paul, you've got to remember, Paul's a logical man. He tries to use logic to get the, his hearers to think, to process, and to see his point so they'll understand it and believe it. He says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? An uncircumcised man is a reference to a Gentile. That's what he's talking about right now. He's talking about, you know those Gentiles, those pagans, those people who don't acknowledge the, theoretically the God of Abraham, right? Paul says, what if a Gentile were to keep the precepts of the law? What if he were to, and I believe he's saying, perfectly obey the law of God? Which obviously no person has. So we see that in Romans 3.9. He's going to make that statement. Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, we've already made that clear, are all under sin. They're all condemned by sin. They're all enslaved to sin. 3.20, he goes on to say, no one will be justified by the works of the law. That is evident. All it does is reveal the knowledge of sin. So we know, we believe based on those passages, this is theoretical. But what if an uncircumcised man did keep the precepts of the law? Would he not then be exempt from God's wrath? Would he not be? Would he not then be welcomed by God? I mean, if he, if he did, uncircumcised, but he kept all the precepts of the law? For Paul said in Romans 2.13, it is the doers of the law who are justified or declared right before God. And would not the Gentiles' uncircumcision then be regarded or considered as circumcision? Meaning, would he not then be considered as a member of the people of God even though he were not physically circumcised? So the point, again, is circumcision doesn't have the value that you think it has. If you break the law of God, circumcision cannot help you. It cannot save you from the wrath of God that you deserve. And theoretically, if you keep the law of God perfectly, then physical circumcision would not really be necessary. Because being uncircumcised would not be an issue for the law keeping Gentile. For God would clearly accept him because he had kept the precepts of the law. The point again is the right of physical circumcision in and of itself has no power to redeem a human being or make them right with God. Paul continues, Romans 2.27 Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, he's talking to the Jew, who have the written code, that is the law, and circumcision, but break the law. Paul continues his argument now from verse 26 by suggesting really just the logical consequences of the hypothetical scenario. A consequence that would have been very, very shocking and upsetting to the Jews. And this is where you and I, we read this and we go, ah, eh, it misses something on us because we don't have a Jewish context. We don't understand the historical nature of what was going on at that time. But one writer says this, in contrast to their traditional picture of themselves, that is the Jew, sitting in judgment on the uncircumcised pagans. Okay, you've got to understand, they saw themselves as one day being the judges of all the other nations. They would sit in judgment over them, which is exactly what we see in Paul's statements in Romans chapter 2, 1 through 3. They're passing judgment on those vile, wicked Gentiles. In this case, Paul says the roles would be reversed. 
And the one who is not circumcised physically, see, that would just blow their mind, who yet obeys the law would actually condemn you, a Jew, who even though you have the written code, which is a reference to the law, and circumcision, the sign of the covenant, are a lawbreaker. In this hypothetical, it is the Gentiles now, obedience in a sense, that would condemn the Jew because it would serve as the evidence of what the Jew should have done but utterly failed to do. So it would just pound up the evidence against this Jew. You were circumcised, you had the written code, and yet this uncircumcised Gentile fulfilled the law. He kept the law. He kept the precepts of the law. He will condemn you. I believe this is simply another attempt by Paul really to just rattle the Jews' unjustified confidence in their right of circumcision, thinking that it gave them an advantage, because they did, over the Gentiles in the judgment. Somehow, making them free from condemnation, even though they were guilty of breaking the law of God. So not only did the Jews wrongly perceive the value, really, of physical circumcision, but Paul now also needed to point out what they should, they should have already known. And that takes us to the second point. Paul now explained the necessity for a different kind of circumcision, for a different kind of circumcision. Let me read this to you. This is another passage where good Bible scholars disagree on exactly what's being said here. But I'm going to give you what I believe it means, and you can always investigate this for yourself, look it up. I encourage you to do that, actually. He begins in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 28. Paul says this, For no one is a Jew. Remember, the whole context is circumcision. He's destroying their perceived value of circumcision. He's wiping it out so that at the end they would say, then what value, what benefit is it? What's the point of even being a Jew? That's that's what he's driving towards. So now he says, uh, this is shocking. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But what? That's what they'd be saying. Wait a minute. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, the Jews praise then, the true Jews praise, is not from man, but ultimately it's from God. Now listen, some people suggest that this passage teaches, listen to me, they, they, they believe this passage teaches that every Christian, every Christian is actually a Jew, uh, a true Jew. I don't believe that's Paul's point here. I don't believe that. I don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. He's not, talking, he's not talking about that here. He's writing to the Jew. He's attacking their right of circumcision. So I don't think that works here. Because some Christians will say, I'm a spiritual Jew. I know. I don't, think, I don't think we have justification for that in the Scriptures. Rather, what fits better with the context is that Paul is teaching this that every natural-born Jew is not a true Jew. Or to put it another way, every Jew by birth is not a genuine Jew in God's eyes. That is, they do not all truly belong to Him. They do not all truly belong to Him. Remember, that word Jew identified you as the people of God. Paul is saying not every person who is born a Jew is actually part of, truly, authentically, the people of God. Not all are really His people. And therefore, not all of them will be saved. Not all of them will be saved. You could rightly say this, that for a Jew to now be a true Jew, okay, you could say this, he must be a Christian. Paul was a true Jew. So when Paul talks about being a true Jew, he's talking about himself. He was a true Jew. But I would not go further and then say, and every Christian is a true Jew. That's not the point. That's not the emphasis. People will 
will say that, and then they go one step further, and then they say, then the Christian has become the true Jew and has taken the position of the nation of Israel, and they have replaced them. And they are to receive all the blessings and promises that were made to the nation of Israel. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Scriptures teach that. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. It is on hold. It will be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. It is not the plan for us, the church, Christians. It is a plan for them. Promises made to them. So we need to keep distinctions that the Bible makes clear. I am not a Jew. I'm not a spiritual Jew. But every true Jew is a Christian. So Paul's point here is being a true Jew is not really then a matter of external things like they believed it was, like outward and physical circumcision. It is not about the outer man, but rather being a true Jew, a true child of God, is really about the inner man. And more specifically, about having a circumcised heart, a heart that has been enabled by God to truly love and worship God, just as God promised in the Old Testament that He would do for His people. See, what the Jews should have been doing, and I believe they were up to some point, it got corrupted. They, they, they knew, I believe they knew at one point that this outward right of circumcision was not what made them right with God, but that it was a symbol of what God promised would take place in the future, where He says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It is something that they should have been anticipating, that this day would come, that God would do this work, Through His Spirit. Who sent the Spirit? Christ. Christ sent the Spirit. There is a work going on now of the Spirit and the Spirit is fulfilling this promise as He moves into the heart of all those who believe in Christ and removes the disease of their heart and enables them now to actually love the Lord God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They should have been anticipating that. But instead, they got corrupted in their thinking. The rabbis now tell them, circumcision, the outward act, that makes you good. You're set. Abraham will stand outside the gates of hell and as long as you're circumcised, you will not have to go in. Regardless of how you lived and what you did or how much you broke the law, you'll be fine. Verse 29, let me read it again. It says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Not by the letter. What does Paul mean by the letter? So the circumcision of the heart that God promised was done and is done by the Spirit, but not by the letter. Well, it's the same Greek word. It's the same exact Greek word that is translated written code. In verse 27. It's the same one. Here they translate it letter. There they translate it written code. And in verse 27, there is no doubt that it's clearly a reference to the law of God. So, based on context, based on the original language, I believe Paul is saying that the the heart circumcision that he's talking about is not accomplished by the law. In other words, by trying to keep the law or by doing the law. It doesn't happen that way. You don't get changed by trying to keep the law. Rather, it is a transformation, a change that comes by the work of the Spirit. It is through a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. This is something that is done to you and takes place within you. It is not something you can do to yourself or is done at the hands of another man, such as the external rite of circumcision. And all those who received or have received this divine surgery, they are those who receive praise not from man, but from God. That's the end of verse 29. Why? Because only He, beloved, only God is able to actually see right through a person into their heart. Only He can see whether they truly have a circumcised heart. 
Oh, look at me, I'm circumcised. Wow, you're circumcised. You deserve praise. Praise of men. What about your heart? Has it been circumcised? Well, only God can see that. Here's Paul's point, I believe. If you just, as long as you don't get caught up in all the details, just the main idea is salvation, beloved, cannot come by external religious rituals. It cannot come by external religious rituals, as the Jews apparently thought at that time, and they placed their hope in. And the circumcision that they should have been concerned about was the one that they, was not the one, rather, that they already had, okay, and were proud of and were putting their confidence in. Rather, it was the circumcision of the heart. That's what they should have been concerned about, a cutting away of the old sinful nature which resides in the heart, which is a work of the Spirit that He does to every true child of God, to every person who places their faith in Him and His Son. By undermining the Jews' confidence in their physical right of circumcision, which is what I believe He just did in 225 through 29, and their reliance on the law, if you were here last week, we talked about that, which He did in... Verses 17 through 24. So he's attacked their, he's attacked their, their hope, really, their false hope. He's just wiped out their castle that they thought protected them from the wrath of God. He attacked their trust in the law, their reliance upon the law. They thought as possessors of the law of God that made them good with God, yet they were breakers of that very law. And here, even if they say, well, yeah, of course we've broken the law, but we are the circumcised. He goes right after that and says, that is really of no salvific value to you. (laughs) That will not save you. For in the end, you will be judged according to the law concerning God's judgment, and you fall short just as those uncircumcised Gentiles do. And so what Paul was doing was, as we said before, he was just paving the way for them to hear the good news of the Gospel so that they might put their faith and confidence in Christ, whose Spirit alone is able to perform the divine heart surgery that they and every sinner so desperately needs. So, how does a passage addressed to Jews regarding the ritual of circumcision, how does it have any value for us today? How does it even relate to us today? Does it? Well, I think it does. I think it can relate to us. One writer says this, Circumcision was to Jewry, or to the Jews, what baptism is to those who maintain baptismal regeneration. Maybe you've never even heard that term, baptismal regeneration. If you're of a Catholic background, then you may not understand that term, but it is something that they practice and teach. You know when the babies are baptized? There is an understanding that that, in some way, saves them. It begins the process of their salvation. It's the idea of baptismal regeneration. Now, even if you're not Catholic, there are some, quote, Protestant churches that have wrongly taught that baptism saves. Baptism saves. And in fact... If you are a professor of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but have yet to be baptized, you're lost. So, you know, this is why. And the churches that teach that and believe that, they, they at least, many of them are at least consistent because they very quickly, after you make a profession of faith, they very quickly get you baptized because they realize, you know, if you die in between, you're out of luck. So I've seen it. At least I've heard about it. There was this man, for instance, they told me the story, this was a church that believed that baptism, and of course you have to do it their way. They have their own formula, some of them, like you have to say in Jesus' name, because if you say in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're not doing it right, because you really have to say in Jesus' name, and then and only then does it work. This, this, is, this is what people, you see, you think that's funny, that they thought that circumcised people would be kept out of hell, and yet this is the same crazy kind of ideas that people come up with, so they believe that, and so they told me the story of this man who professed faith in Christ while he was on his deathbed. So they said, oh my goodness, how is he going to get baptized? He'll never get out of here. So they, they took a portable tub in there, they blew it up, 
And they took him off the bed and they put him in there and they did their baptism and now the guy's good. At least they're consistent, okay? They're just wrong, okay? They're wrong. They're unbiblical. It's not true. And so many of you, you know, I know you're shaking your head, that's crazy, that's crazy. And yet, somewhere along the way, some of us start to buy into this nonsense and believing that because we're baptized, that we're now right with God. That we're now truly saved. Just last week, we had four baptisms. So glad for them, right? So thankful for them. Why do we baptize? Well, God commands it. That's a start. That's a good place to start. He says, go make disciples. Baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? He tells us to do that. So that's what we do. But we don't baptize because we believe it does something to the person salvifically, that it brings salvation to them. We baptize because we believe they're already saved. We call it a believer's baptism. We believe baptism symbolizes what has already happened on the inside. See, for the Jew, what what circumcision should have meant, that outward circumcision, it should have meant this is what symbolizes what God has done to my heart through His Spirit that was sent by Christ who I have placed my faith in. That's what it should have meant. But we get all messed up. The Jews were all messed up at this point. And they started saying, no, this outward act actually does something. It actually saves. So, beloved, we, we encourage people who have made profession of faith in Christ. You should get baptized. You should do it as in, in obedience to the Lord. He commands it. If you're unwilling to do it, that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. Some, something's wrong. But at the same time, what we would never say, and we spent a lot, I spent a lot of time at baptisms trying to make this point, this water does not save you. Think about if it did. Then that would mean that I actually, or whoever was baptizing you, actually had a, a hand in the process of your salvation. <laughs> I put you under and I bring you back out, and now you, you can't baptize by yourself. I mean, I guess you could if you were really athletic, but it would be difficult. But it's not the formula anyway, so it wouldn't count. But you've you got to be baptized by someone. So again, just like someone is um, a baby can't circumcise themselves, someone circumcises them. It's the same idea that then the, I could boast in this. I could boast, you could boast in me. You could say, oh, I was baptized by so-and-so and this and that. And what, in the end, it means that's why I don't, I'm not the only one who does baptisms. Because we don't think there's some priestly function happening where power comes through me and and I have the right now to put that power on you, that saving power. It's all nonsense. We have other people baptize because it's just a symbolic act, an important one, significant one, but it symbolizes the fact that you have been placed into Christ through faith and resurrected in newness of life. He has put His Spirit in you. He has circumcised your part. He has made you a new creature. That's all that's going on in that act. And that's why it's important. It also declares, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and I am His. So, that's enough about baptism. But let me just add this quickly. Circumcised heart. Beloved, I think there are many baptized folks, church-going folks, who have yet to truly repent and put their faith in Christ, and they don't have a circumcised heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can get baptized. You can attend church services. You could even be a member. Because you told us you did all these things, right? But in the end, because you've never really repented and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that divine surgery never happened. And so what happens is you go around through life going, this Christian thing, I don't know, man. This is so hard. I don't think it works. Do you know why it's not working for you? It could be. But your heart's never been circumcised. You have the external realities of Christianity. But you don't have the internal realities of Christianity. So for you, what you have to do is is come clean. Stop lying to yourself. Stop thinking that 
because I was baptized or because I grew up in a Christian home or because I attend church regularly. That makes me saved. No, it doesn't. None of it does. Saved people do those things, but those things don't make people saved. What saves an individual is their faith, their repentance. They turn to Christ. They turn from their, their life. They say, I don't want that life anymore. God, now help me. Do a work in me that I might love you, that I might follow you, that I might be with you. And when that happens, He does that work. He does something. It's supernatural. I can't do it to you. No one, you can't do it to yourself. He does it. And when He does it, real change begins to happen. Overnight? (laughs) I wish. Slowly, certainly, progressively, it begins to happen. You go from being a devil... To be in a saint. To be in a saint inside. And then your life begins to manifest the reality of God's work in your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, this passage, some of it's a little difficult. A little difficult to to get at, to understand. But Father, if we could just draw back and, and maybe take the bigger point religious rituals, external things, they cannot save, Father. You alone save. You do it in a very powerful way and you do it when we simply place our faith in your revelation to us. You have revealed to us your Son. You have revealed to us that your Son died for our sins. Father, we have to believe that. You have revealed to us that your Son is not just a Son, but He is the Lord. He is the Sovereign Lord. He is King. Father, when we turn to Him, we must recognize who He is. Not just some nice guy, but the Lord of all. So when we believe in Him, we are saying, in a sense, He is the Lord of us as well. Father, when we place saving faith in Christ, something incredible happens a work of yours. You circumcise our heart. You remove that mess. You give us new hearts. You make us a new creation. Then and only then, Father, can we truly begin to worship you and to love you in a way that honors you. It's no longer just an external manifestation, but an internal reality that demonstrates itself in many ways externally. Father, I pray for those here that Certainly there are those here who maybe they are placing their faith, their hope, and their baptism that they had when they were kids. But there's no signs, no evidence of any change, no transformation in their life at all. Father, I I pray that you would convict them and work in their hearts and minds to reveal to them that that baptism did not save them. It cannot. It never will. It was never intended to. Just a circumcision that you gave to the Jewish people was never intended to save them. It was intended to identify them as the people of God and to point to something that they desperately needed. They should have been anticipating and rejoicing in when Christ came and promised to send His Spirit, the very Spirit that would come and circumcise their hearts that they might love the Lord God. They missed it. They just missed it. Lord, I pray we would not miss it. Work in our hearts. Help us to understand Your Word that we might be changed by it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.